Welcome to Press Room on Radio Town. Presented by Garrard's Horse and Hound. Making shopping easier with their online store. The same extensive catalogue, the same keen prices online or over the phone. 1-800-060-896 or visit horseandhound.com.au. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Press Room for Monday, December 18. As Andrew Brown outlined, this will be our last Press Room for 2023. Of course, next Monday being Christmas Day, the following Monday, New Year's Day, we will have a national racing service. We're back on deck on Monday, January 8, when we're right in the thick of the Magic Millions Carnival. But plenty to discuss, as always, every Monday. Thanks for your company. All the regular panellists coming up. Ben Dory's not too far away. Want your support as well? Want your contributions? News or views? Agree or disagree? You know the drill. 0499 putter. That's 0499 786 We can tweet me via Radio Tab or at Radio Tab Oz. And the podcast, of course, out each and every week. For you to listen to, you can go to the link on Radio Tab Oz or go to Spotify and search under Radio Tab. Always great to have the support of Garrett's Horse at Hound. They present Press Room each and every Monday. Well, an important milestone occurred in the last few days that largely went unnoticed. The young man who achieved this milestone is unlucky as a trio of big moments on the weekend understandably battled it out for top billing in the, in the racing and the wider media, for that matter. Damien Oliver coming up trumps at his final ride in his hometown will long be acknowledged as a great sporting moment. Leap to fame's inter-dominion victory was breathtaking, while the greyhound Scalacci provide a great feel-good story in winning the Phoenix at the Meadows on Saturday night. But on Friday afternoon at Redcliffe, Nathan Dawson drove his 400th winner for the season when Mac Daddy swept along the inside to claim a last stride victory. Nathan is a modest and quietly spoken 28-year-old trotting driver and not afforded any favours by not being attached to a big stable. His driving does his talking. This outstanding achievement of 400 wins can be put into perspective on two fronts. Only one other driver, one other in Australia trotting history, has driven more than 400 winners. That was Chris Alford. He actually did it on two occasions. Secondly, Nathan sits on 400 while his nearest rival in the winning department, Gary Hall Jr. in Western Australia, is on 263. That's 137 winners in arrears when you do the math. And it's also worth pointing out that Nathan's driven 260 seconds and 255 thirds. That volume of work combined with his results is staggering. It boils down to hard work combined with a great ability to drive. A young man who wasn't born with a silver spoon probably wouldn't care that the moment largely went unnoticed because that's Nathan Dawson. Hopefully today, in a small way, we've acknowledged this outstanding achievement. You're listening to Press Room on Radio Tab. Ben Dorries joins us now. First up on Press Room. Ben, good morning. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, David. Uh, I've had a week off. I've got another week coming off. Uh, looking forward to getting up to the Sunshine Coast, laying on the beach up there for a while. Uh, it'll be terrific, but I've still been keeping a good eye on the racing. In fact, so much so, I was at the uh, Inner Dominion finals on Saturday night and uh, enjoyed every minute of it. We held our breath in terms of the weather because we got a ripper of a storm on Friday and we had storm activity on Saturday. But fortunately, when the, when the starter said go in ID23 pacing final, the, the skies were fine. And uh, just from your perspective, and, and uh, I don't know how many 
harness meetings you've been to or trotting meetings you've been to. What was the atmosphere like? I thought it was tremendous, David. It was really rocking and rolling. It was, um, I've, I've got to say, I was probably, I'm not a harness racing person. I, I haven't been to a whole lot of meetings, probably, you know, less than a dozen, I suppose, in my life. But I, I was really pleasantly surprised with the vibe on track. I dare say there was many more people there than there, there was at the Thoroughbred race meeting that day. Um, and look, it was a good atmosphere all night. And I think... You know, Leap to Fame's win just really added to that, didn't it? It was a real Queensland affair, which was terrific, seeing as we hadn't seen these finals here for, for, for many years. And, look, I, I really must say I enjoyed, well, I don't know if enjoyed's the right word, but, but I thought it was a terrific story that Adam Hamilton did yesterday on big-time owner Kevin Seymour, who has poured so much, hasn't he, uh, into the harness racing caper over the years basically saying he was so emotional when he won, when the Leap to Fame, his horse won. And one of the reasons was uh, just recently he suffered a very bad heart attack. His artery was 99% blocked. They had to rush him straight away into surgery. He was on death's door. Like, it was that bad, and they saved his life. So, look, uh, for what we saw on the track, incredible story, incredible backstory to that win through the owner, Kevin Seymour, too, David. Yeah, exactly right. Kevin Seymour is a man who rarely shows uh, a lot of emotion. He may feel it, but he rarely expresses it. And uh, for that to happen, there had to be a backstory to it. And I, it, it wasn't. It was not completely unknown that Kevin had uh, experienced that uh, heart issues a, sh- a short time ago. But uh, yeah, really, really sensitive moments there. Um, moments that I think long-time trot goers would not have experienced and will remember it for a long time. And they'll remember that horse too, because one thing we've got to remember, and Chris Barsby, I'll talk to him later, but one thing about this Leap to Fame story, it was a great story because he's a Queenslander, he's on his home track. We never thought we'd probably have it into Dominion at Albion Park again, but we did. But the best part is this horse is only four years of age. Yeah, and... Do you know what, David? I think there were so many people. And look, I'm no harness aficionado. I don't really know the form all that well. But I know the big names of the sport. And I think a lot of people probably were in my sort of bracket that might have gone. I actually went with a, with a school dad um, that, that I'm friends with who, who sort of takes a passing interest in the code. But uh, a lot of people, I think, went expecting a real shootout, didn't they, between Leap to Fame and Swayze. And it never really eventuated, did it? I mean, it was just Leap to Fame... Uh, you know, once he found the lead, it was just about all over for the for the shouting. Swayze, Swayze uh, did his level best, but it was just no match. And and I, I guess maybe that was the only small thing. I suppose people were, were thinking these two big guns would be going at each other down the down the straight, down the finishing stretches, and that never really quite eventuated. But if you're in the leap to fame camp, uh, you were in, I dare say, the queue waiting to collect a fair way from home. You sound like you're hooked, Danny, so you'll be betting on the trots all the time. <laughs> yeah, I think you well, will. David, well, David, let me into you. Let me into you. I'll let you into a little secret. I have someone um, who delivers me some harness racing mail occasionally, a little few few tips here and there, and very, very good judge they are. So I, I must admit I don't know what I'm doing, but if I follow their tips and seem to come out on top more often than not. You'll have to share them with me. That was Albion Park on Saturday night. An hour down the track... And I'm still coming to terms with this. Maybe, I don't know, maybe something wrong with me, but I still can't believe that Damien Oliver, at his last ride, weaved that passage and got up. And I said in the opening remarks, it'll be long remembered or or will be long acknowledged as a great sporting moment. I'm sure that's certain. 
it is. But tell you what, you're always coloured by your own sort of uh, action on the race, aren't you? Like, I had a fairly significant bet on Ripcord down the outside. Mm. I thought I was, just, I was celebrating about 300 out. I was counting my cash. Because they win from down, they either lead and win, mm. or they swoop down the outside at Ascot, don't they? Very, very rarely, once in a blue moon, do you sort of see them weave through the field from last, like D. Oliver did. It was, I've got to say, and I know it wasn't a group one, uh, you know, it, it was in Perth, it was a bit out of sight, out of mind for some people. I reckon that would go down in one of his top 20 greatest rides. Mm. Like, it doesn't have the... You know, it, it doesn't have the Group One status. It doesn't, you know, it, it doesn't have a lot of other things. But in terms of a pure ride, like the thing drew the outside, uh, he was right back near last. Like I, like I reckon, live betting on that race, that horse dead set would have been a hundred to one. Like at some points, like that was just an absolutely remarkable ride. And of course, that was three in a row. He won three races in a row, mm. and he hadn't been able to strike a blow, you know, and win many races really all the way back since he announced his retirement. He did win a Group One on the Legato Blood, but hadn't had a whole lot of luck. So this was just a dazzling way to go out. And do you know what, David? I've been around sport for covered sport for thirty years. You don't see fairy fairy tale farewells very often. I mean, these guys when they announced their retirement, whether they're a cricketer or a footy player. Whatever they are, these fairy tale, fairy tale farewells, when a cricketer goes out in his last test and scores 100 or a rugby league play wins a grand final, they don't happen all that often. No. They're, 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 you know, we don't see them. So this was, this was incredible stuff. And look, I've got to say, I mean, this isn't having a crack at Perth stewards because all they're doing is upholding the rules of racing as they stand. But look, personally, I think we've got to get rid of this ridiculous rule where jockeys are fined or sanctioned when, when they celebrate, uh, go up in the irons or salute just before the winning post. Yeah, okay, if it's dangerous, uh, if there's any element of danger or, or stupidity to it, that's fine. But if it's a simple celebration that, that doesn't cause any angst or, or distress or interference or, or anything like that, I mean, I don't see the problem with it. Damien Oliver's fined $500. Now, that's neither here nor there, but my point is... I mean, I think racing should be, or should realise, it's in the entertainment business. I, I mean, don't we actually want to see jockeys celebrating their, their, their biggest wins? I mean, I still remember vividly Glenn Boss winning the Cox Plate on Sir Dragonet in 2020. There was no one at Mooney Valley that day. No one. Uh, you know, COVID protocols, etc. We were right in the middle of the pandemic. But Bossy went high on the irons. That was an iconic moment that is actually used as a promotional tool for racing, yet he was fined $1,000 for doing it. it. To me, it's just not common sense. I think racing needs to get, get with the times, assess everything on, on, its, on its measure. If there's any stupidity to it, uh, fine. You know, fine them, sanction them. But, but if it's just something simple like that, I, I just think we're taking the piss a bit in this day and age, David. Your thoughts? Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think it has to be judged uh, on an individual basis and there was no need for a fine there. Uh, you know, I just I just find it unnecessary. But but just going back to, to, to Oliver, um, it's all there for everyone to see. His last ride in his hometown winning and him going out on his terms and going out on a high. You can't get better than that. But we also yesterday, we were speaking with Ernie Manning yesterday morning, and we talked about Oliver, the, the man. Of course, Ernie had known him since he was a young apprentice. We had a chat with Lee Friedman as well, and he gave some insight. You've spent time with Oliver, and I'm sort of thinking 
that what we see or what you see is what you get. Is that right? Yeah, I think so, David. He's quite a hard guy to sort of get to know, is my take on him. Like, he's very... doesn't give much of himself away. And I feel that may have been a little bit coloured by, you know, his ban. Like, he was banned for the sport for, for some time, obviously, which I think hurt him in a lot of areas, um, you know, in terms of his dealing with the media, the, the public. You know, he had some bit of family strife in those times as well. So I get the feeling... Uh, he may have just gone into his shell a bit, uh, you, you know, after that. But, um, yeah, look, I sat down with him, I think, for an hour when he when he revealed his retirement plans to me in, I can't remember when it was, it must have been late August, I think. And I found a guy that wasn't too expansive. Like, if I asked him a question, he would answer it. Mm. Uh, but, but there was no sort of bells and whistles on top of it. I get the feeling he's actually a guy who's quite uncomfortable talking about himself. Like, if you ask him about his family, uh, you know, he, his fallen father who died in the race fall, his brother who died in the race fall, if you ask him about other jockeys' thoughts on the Melbourne Cup, he's quite expansive. But when you ask him about himself, he just withdraws into his shell a bit. He just doesn't give too much away. Mm. Uh, but that's fine. I mean, it takes... You know, everyone's different, aren't they? So, look, it'll be interesting to see. He's sort of going into to do a bit of media work post-racing. So, it'll be interesting to see if he just sort of opens up a bit. Um, but I get the feeling, above all else, and I might have said this to you on the show before, David, I think D. Oliver, we know him as a jockey. I think he's a family man. If you asked him what he's best at or what he wants to be best at, it wouldn't be race riding. It'd be being a, a terrific, you know, husband and father to his kids. That's That's... That's sort of the picture of the, the D Oliver that I got when I sat down with him uh, a few months ago. And I don't pretend to know him well at all. Um, but, yeah, just a reserved character and reluctant to just sort of have too much fanfare. And I think that's why at times, David, he was probably a bit uncomfortable with this whole extended farewell. I think it sort of actually grated on him a little bit in the end. Um, so you probably saw that extra emotion, uh, you know, bubble over when when, uh, you know, he won those races on the weekend, and that was probably why, I think. And blow me down to Scalacci wins the Phoenix of the Meadows. Unbelievable, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Scalacci, of course, the horse that he rode, um, you know, to glory so many times. And Scalacci, the outsider in the Phoenix, the dog race, and they'd actually used Damien Oliver to to promote it. You know, there was pictures taken of him with the dog. Uh, It was incredible stuff, you know. And, And look... I can understand your initial reservations about the timing of the Inner Dominion being earlier than usual and how it all rolled out. But, look, I've got to say, sort of being there on track for the Inner Dominion, watching the Inner Dominion, then, you know, I think it was about an hour later, wasn't it? Or I've had a few beers. It might have been 20 minutes later or an hour and a half later. I'm not quite sure. And then the Phoenix, I sort of thought it had a nice sort of vibe to it, a nice sort of roll-on effect. And I reckon if you were having a bet on the Inner Dominion, you would have probably stayed on to watch you know, all his farewell and have a bet on that and potentially even the dogs. 100%. I, I think I think in the end, and again, yeah, I wasn't that, that fussed on that 6.30 time, but in the end, the way it panned out, the way one rolled into another, it was right on the night. And I suppose that's what counts. Look, just before you go, uh, this Jamie Carr situation, uh, there was a, a well, a, a turn, not a turnaround as such, but certainly a, a strong development last week. Yeah, so she was cleared of conduct prejudicial to the image of racing in relation to that white powder uh, controversy. So, look, we won't go into all the syntax of it, but, look, I think anyone listening will remember the basics of the case. But, look, in handing down his decision, Judge Bowman said 
that he was not comfortably satisfied that Jamie Carr's conduct was prejudicial because she did not know that the video uh, that was being taken of this alleged white powder uh, in a private gathering was being filmed and sent around. However, uh, her co-accused, uh, stable hand Ruby McIntyre, who actually took the video, uh, was found guilty of the same charge. So, look, um, I guess it's onwards uh, and upwards for Jamie Carr. Do you think, David, uh, if we see her, I'm not sure if we will, but uh, if we see her up at the Magic Millions, I know she certainly likes the polo and, and that side of things, whether she rides on the Magic Millions race day, uh, we'll have to wait and see. But onwards and upwards for Jamie Carr. Good on you, mate. To you and the family, have a good Christmas and we'll touch base uh, in a few weeks' time. Beautiful. To all the listeners, have a great Christmas and a happy new year and we'll talk next year. Can't wait, David. There is Ben Norris joining us, of course, each and every week here on Press Room and also on Past the Post on Sundays. Mitch Cohen joins us from the Daily Telegraph. Now, Mitch, good morning. Good morning, mate, and good morning to all the listeners. Yep, uh, good. Uh, we're just right on that festive cheer, aren't we? Mm. Just a few weeks, to, or next this time next week. Uh, well, it will, will it be too early to crack the first beer? We'll have to wait and see. Certainly not. Certainly not. <laughs> what about um, this Magic Millions two-year-old race is starting to take shape? We're about a month away from the, the two-year-old and the, the Magic Millions guineas, and we're starting to see, I, I believe, significant races, and I think one that is of high significance was the Wyong race last Wednesday. Now, Spy Wire, we thought Spy Wire might come here for the feel and ready. They just had a slight setback, couldn't run in the race. He would have been long odds on, and, and knowing the op- opposition, he would have won. But he went to Wyong, they deferred and went to Wyong. He looked to have the race wrapped up, and all of a sudden, Highness, a horse trained by Michael Friedman, but James Harron charged late and beat him. Spywire seemed to have every chance, but I will say one thing. I've watched this race over several years now. I noted the time, Mitch, one three point two five for the two-year-olds, eleven hundred wild. That's a good gallop. What I'm saying is, I think this will be a very strong form reference for the big one in a month's time. Yeah, for sure. And look, this race, I think we, if you were on social media, it sent social media a buzz a little bit as well. I think a, a few people talking through their pockets. I think um, Tyler Schiller. Look, he did ease up for just the slightest of moments, had a look at the screen and saw this horse coming, but take nothing away from Highness. I think this we've just got a really good, serious galloper here, Michael Friedman. Uh, look, he obviously had a, a run coming into this. He had the experience under his belt in that breeder's plate, but uh, had won a trial in the lead-up there and won a trial again. And how far he's come between that, that run in the breeders and this race um, was, was clearly evident. He obviously hit the line like a very serious horse. That last 150, David, was just so impressive, wasn't it? The way he went through his gears and he really savaged the line. So he'll go straight there now. It'll be uh, probably a trial at the end of the month before he heads up there. But obviously winning a race like that Magic Millions prize money's no issue. Now, Spywire, look, he, he looked the winner. He, he made it all in front, didn't he? He was, he, he looked the, well, he turned and kicked a couple of lengths clear, but uh, look, it just wasn't his day. No, it certainly was. And as I said, one three point two five the time. We can reference on the day, the, there was a race called, horse called Bojangles one. Apparently he's above average. They ran one three there. The track record is one two fifteen. But uh, I think both high, particularly Highness and, and, and Spywire, I'm not giving up on Spywire, I think they laid strong claims for the the millions, just market wise. Spy wise, six dollars and highness is eight, which is sort of a little surprising, seeing 
Highness ran down Spywire. Another race I want to talk about in terms of the Magic Millions is the opener at Royal Ramwick on Saturday. Now, Amazing Eagle came into this race with a big boom on him, understandably, trialled like a bomb, went out short, but a node, another Waterhouse Pod youngster, uh, won the race quite impressively. Firstly, I want to ask you, what were your thoughts of Amazing Eagle's performance? Oh, I think it was just over at the start, wasn't it? I think in these two-year-old races, it's so important to, to just get every little thing right, isn't it? And he obviously led them up in that trial and, and went so fast. Once he'd sort of missed the kick a couple, it was pretty much game over. He raced a bit green uh, throughout the run, obviously still a colt, plenty to learn. But once he wasn't out in front like he was in that trial, he did only have that one trial after all. It, it all got a little bit difficult for him, but... As we know with these Gay Waterhouse and Adrian Bot trained two-year-olds, uh, he was first away and Oden, he was first home. He actually had the, the fastest first sectional of the race and the fastest last sectional of the race. He was he was quick out of the gates. He was a professional out in front, as we know with these two-year-olds out of Tullock Lodge. And, and that was game over for him. He, he was very impressive. Now, he was passed in mm. at the Magic Million sale and, and isn't actually um, able to go up there this year. So it looks like it'll be potentially a blue diamond path for him. Now, Gay and Adrian, aren't they just building one of the nicer pre-Christmas hands they've had in uh, recent years? It's hard to judge them because they've always obviously got an excellent two-year-old hand. But this year, they've just got so many smart colts. Now, we've seen Shangri-La Express. He's been held out of the Magic Moons. They think enough of him to go straight to the Golden Slipper. Storm Boy, obviously, is favourite for the Magic Moons after his terrific win the other day. And now you've got a node who's, you'd have to think, uh, one of the early contenders for a Blue Diamond. So, Kay and Adrian, wowee. But uh, on, on the fact of just back on Amazing Eagle, I just... I wouldn't give up on him just yet. I think uh, a two-year-old having his first start, missing it a little... You've got to forgive him, especially off how brilliant that trial was. Yeah, he's still at $11 for the Millions. Storm Boy, of course, for Waterhouse and Bot is the, the Millions' favourite at $5. We mentioned Spywire 6. Straight Charge is right up there. Another Waterhouse Bot runner at $6. Highness at 8. Amazing Eagle 11. Arabian Summer, who was uh, fast and won by a good margin at Ballarat, $11 as well. They're the top players in Tab Fixed Markets. I want to talk about uh, Annabelle Neesham because you've written in the Telegraph this morning about a horse we haven't forgotten about but we haven't seen her for some time learning to fly. Yeah, I guess you're some, you could almost say you, you forget, I guess, the early preparation of learning to fly where she was the boom filly of Sydney racing, really. She won her first three starts in Sydney and was the leading filly going into that golden slipper. Now, uh, the slipper didn't go to plan. Obviously, she was hurting that slipper. Um, but she's back now. She had a trial last Monday. Uh, look, she was just given a day out there. But uh, look, Annabelle is very, very excited about what this what this filly can do in the coming months. She labelled her probably the most exciting horse in her stable. Now, she's got the likes of, obviously, a Group 1 horse like Zaki that's on the back end of his career, but still a, a Group 1 quality horse, and a horse like Sunshine in Paris, of course, which was in an Everest. So to, to label this filly potentially the most exciting in her stable, uh, well, it's pretty ominous, isn't it? And, look, she's looking to do something similar to what she did with Sunshine in Paris last year. Now, Sunshine in Paris won in November and December last year before going again uh, in the autumn and, and running second in that light fingers and then winning the surround. Now, that's the same thing she wants to do with learning to fly. It's light fingers surround. Whether she has a run before, then she's just got to wait and see. Obviously, coming off a setback like she has, we've still got to see her back 
doing what we know she can do. But uh, Annabelle's certainly very excited, and, and why not after what we saw her do earlier in the two-year-old season? She was outstanding. Yeah, certainly was. Any This is a question without notice. Any news on what Sunshine in Paris is doing? Because we haven't seen her, of course, since she won the Scirocco, and then they couldn't uh, proceed to the Everest. What's the, what's the story there? Is there a story there? Uh, not not too uh, exactly on top of that. I know she's back in a- active on uh, if you if you look on online, she's back active. It was only uh, a minor setback, obviously, mm. that kept her out of the Everest at the time. It was just, I guess, one of those untimely ones. But yeah, I could I couldn't uh, for certain say where where she's going. Mazu, you've got some news there. Yeah, it looks like he's going to be on the move. Uh, mate, it's uh, well a, a bit of sort of uh, was mooted uh, a bit of whispers last week. Anyway, a bit of Chinese whispers that potentially um, connections wanted to uh, move on from the Snowdens with Ma Zhu. Uh, obviously, uh, he's competing in the last two Everests. Uh, it's understood they had a vote last week, and and the. Uh, decision was made to move on from the Snowdens. What the new stable is at the moment hasn't been decided, but uh, they did want a fresh start. Uh, look, I think personally, I think the Snowdens did a terrific job with this horse. So he was obviously desperately unlucky throughout the spring with bad gates and go back and watch the Everest. It uh, just didn't go to plan for him. They won a group one with him, but um, it turns out the ownership uh, want more. Yeah, well, we'll follow that up uh, with interest. Um, just before you go, one final point. Um, always hearing good reports about this trainer, Nathan Doyle, and he was to the fore at, at Ramwick on Saturday with a double. He looks like he's a trainer with promise. For certain. I think he'd, it's, at the moment he's obviously training out of Newcastle with only sort of uh, a small stable of about 40 in work, but I think it's a matter of time. Once he gets some more boxes, those boxes won't take long to fill, that's for sure. He had a double at Randwick on Saturday. Obviously, Boston Rocks was an excellent winner there and will be going to the Gosford Guineas. But this season, he's trained 33 winners at nearly 25% strike rate. So um, I don't know uh, many trainers in Australia that have had as many runners, but you wouldn't find many in New South Wales, that's for sure, that strike at that sort of percentage. It's a, it's a real credit to his placement. And I think uh, you'll see him making a bigger impact in town a lot more over the next two years or so. Good on you, mate. Have a good Christmas. You too. There he is. Mitch Cohen joining us from the Daily Telegraph. I've outlined that market for the Magic Millions two-year-old. As far as the three-year-old's concerned, there's been one significant shift here. Uh, but currently we've got three co-favourites today. Dollars abounding. Chrysale and Keenan. I think Chrysale's down to trial at Rose Hill today. Show Me Mercy was the one. Now, we talked about this on Past the Post yesterday. I felt his run was one of the uh, stronger in the gold edition. He started off at $26 when markets were released. He was 16 yesterday, but obviously they've had a close look at that video because he's down to $9 now. So he's uh, come in all of a sudden to be right behind the, the favourite bracket, Royal Tribute at 11 and Weigel Tiger. But Kelly Schweder will see him on Saturday in the city to surf at uh, Eagle Farm at $11. King of the Mountain, bit of work to do here. There's uh, 12 slot holders. Only four so far have... Uh, uh, secured runs in the race. Rothfire, all that pizzazz, legal esprit and steady ready. Rothfire, 250 after they met 280 that race on New Year's Day. Well, the Inter-Dominion 23, ID 23 Carnival concluded on Saturday night with uh, expected results. Leap to fame, making a clean sweep in the paces and just believe similarly in the trotters. Chris Barsby's been with us for several Mondays now and he's with us now. This is the last one for a little while, mate. I'll let you rest after this one. 
No, I appreciate it, David. It was a, a great culmination there on Saturday night. We crowned two uh, very deserving champions in Leap to Fame and Just Believe. And I'm sure there's a piece of history that played out here on Saturday night at Albion Park because I've scanned the record books over the past couple of days just trying to track this down and I can't come up with the uh, the record. But this is the first time that two horses, two champions have been crowned where they've clean swept the series. So it's quite rare for the trotters to go through the same format as the paces. So the four runs in 14 days, three heats and a final. But that's what those two horses did uh, on Saturday night. Leap to fame, clean sweep of the heats, just like Just Believe. And then they dominated their final. So I think there was a small piece of history there that the two champions have completely swept the series. And I, I can't find it where that's happened previously. Leap to fame... Um win uh, and the, the, the running of the race has been uh, seen and, and well conversed with and, and well documented. Uh, but one thing I did want to touch on again, I did touch on this yesterday on Past the Post. I know he got to the front, but the time he ran for that 2680 metres and his last mile, they were extraordinary figures. Uh, I've been watching these races for a long time and goodness gracious, he was just reeling off quarters uh, and doing it well than himself and and, uh, you know, one with consummate ease. But that time, is that a new track record? Yes, it is, yeah. I, I'm, I'm, that's a world record, in fact, for the, the 26.80. So, you know, it, it's something that is a little unique in the fact that there's not a great deal of uh, racing at that distance range, but uh, world record, mm. yes, and as you would understand, it was conducive to fast times there on Saturday night. We're in the middle of summer, so it was hot, it was steamy. But he just did it with such ease. Uh, 53.5 for 26.80. His last mile in 51.2, the plugs were still in, and he's finished off in 54.7. So he was phenomenal, and uh, yeah, that's that's a world record there for Leap to Fame on Saturday night. We've mentioned Kevin and Kay Seymour. Congratulations to them, and, of course, to Grant and Trista Dixon and the family. Uh, Grant with that whip flourish as they went to the line. That was a, a special moment for him. What path does Leap to Fame take now after Saturday night? Well, he's going to have an easy week between now and the end of the year, so uh, there's not going to be a great deal of action for Leap to Fame, and rightly so, that they focused on the back end of 2023. And yes, he came up short in a few of those races uh, through no fault of his own. He just had bad barrier draws and no luck in running, but he got his crowning glory there on, on Saturday night. So they're just going to give him an easy, probably 10-day period. Uh, they're keen to get to Melbourne again. They want to tackle the Hunter Cup. And the big race, this is the most important race for Leap to Fame, is the Miracle Mile, which comes up in the first week of March. So given that he's a stallion, he's an Inter-Dominion winner, if they can put the Miracle Mile against his CV, that is going to stand him in very good stead when he finally goes to the next phase of his career and goes to stud. So as we know, it's one of the uh, the time-honoured features on the harness racing calendar, the Miracle Mile. So they're the two big ones. They're the immediate targets, the Hunter Cup, followed by the Miracle Mile. And then I'm sure Connections will then start to focus on the Brisbane Winter Carnival, the Constellations as it's now known. And then at the end of the year, a title defence. So next year, the series, the Inter-Dominion series goes back to Sydney. It's a track that he's got a phenomenal record at. So there'll be some sort of focus on uh, going back to back. And given that he's only about to turn five, he's in the uh, the peak of his career, the prime of his career. So you'd be a brave man to be tipping away from leap to fame to go back to back next year. Yes, yeah, certainly. And I think that's the significant part that he's still only a four-year-old. Um, inevitably, and I think with some um, legitimacy, 
comparisons will now start with Blake's a fake, or is that too early to do that? Um, no, I think there's comparisons being made, and one that came up across the weekend was was that the most dominant performance that we've seen by an Inter-Dominion Grand Final winner? You go back through the record books, and, and you're probably better versed than me here, but the one that stands out for me was El Sue in 2005. There wasn't a horse in the world that was going to beat El Sue. He, he clean-swept that series, won all, all of his heats and dominated the final. He was an absolute powerhouse back in 2005. So I don't know if you go back a little further in time... Are we looking at a village kid when he dominated in 1986? But he, he was he was unbelievably good there on Saturday night in every aspect, leap to fame. So maybe you're better versed than me to start drawing comparisons. Yeah, look, I, you, know, you, you start to think about uh, races and then you might go and actually watch the replay and it's not what you thought. Sometimes the memory mm. plays tricks, so... All I can say is on what I saw on Saturday night, and the other thing too, comparisons can be fraught with danger sometimes when you're comparing horses of different eras or, or you know, in, in harness racing, drivers of different eras, trainers of different eras. But in isolation, that performance on Saturday night at the times recorded, it would have to rate, in my mind, as one of the best I've seen, not just from an Inter-Dominion, but any any feature race. Uh, just believe, uh, totally dominant as far as the trotters were concerned, so does it just keep trotting along and winning? Yeah, there's no doubt about that. He, he is clearly the number one trotter in this country. I mentioned this last week. No Australian-bred trotter has ever banked more than a million dollars in their career. He's just shy of that figure now following the victory on Saturday night. So all going to plan, he will become the first Australian-bred trotter to crack a million dollars in stake earnings. And there's so much on offer. The great Southern star back in his home state of Victoria, that comes around uh, the same time as the Hunter Cup. So that's going to be in early February. That's the obvious target. And then they'll start looking at other targets. Uh, I'm sure Connections will be keen to get to New Zealand. They've got the Trot Slot, which is a new race on the calendar over there. They'll be keen to get him over there and, and tackle that feature race. And then, obviously, uh, getting back to Sydney uh, for the Inter-Dominion next year. He's now competed in, in three straight Inter-Dominion series. He was third in his first go in Sydney a few years ago. He won last year in Melbourne. He's dominated in Brisbane this year. So I'm sure that's going to be a, uh, another key target. He's rising eight, just believe, but he's still lightly raised. That was only his 64th race start there on Saturday night. He's now won 22 times, so it's a phenomenal record, one and three strike rate, and they've still got a lot on offer. Will they be keen to get back to Europe like they uh, did this year? Maybe, but that's going to come ba uh, back to logistics and costings because it was such a, a heavy exercise to undertake. So I'm sure Connections would want to go through that experience again, but getting him there and back, plus the money's involved, it's it's not an easy assignment. So we'll wait and see. But there's still a lot of uh, big races coming up on home soil that they can focus on. When you consider that uh, the odds seemed unlikely we'd have another Inter-Dominion at Albion Park, the fact that we have, uh, congratulations to, to Racing Queensland and the Albion Park Harness Racing Club. The series was well conducted and they were awarded with uh, a, a great attendance and hopefully excellent turnover on grand final night. Now, on a broader front, and this has been a point of discussion on this show for some time, the uh, short-term future of Albion Park, there was a suggestion that uh, harness racing might have to close earlier than expected to facilitate uh, this um, Olympic venture. 
I'm not hearing anything, or I'm not seeing anything in writing, but I'm hearing the drums are beating that maybe we can stay longer or to the original uh, time of, I think, late 2026. So from an Inter-Dominion point of view, just give us the timetable. Where do we go in the next few years? So Sydney next year, and then the following year, which will be 2025, it's back in Melbourne, and then we're back on the clock in 2026, which coincides with the ending of Albion Park. And you're right, I've heard the same thing. So we're back at that original closing date. So uh, I think it's October 2026, the doors will close on Albion Park. Uh, So the question then begs, will the 2026 series be moved from the time slot that we've just gone through, uh, summer, December period, will it move to earlier in the year, uh, send off Albion Park with one last hurrah, or will that coincide with the uh, the opening of the new complex at Norwell? So that's yet to be determined. There's plenty of water to go under the bridge, but they're the two options. We either have one more send-off at Albion Park or it's going to be part of the new opening at Norwell. Say we ran it in winter in 2026, would we then get the New Zealand paces here? I think you're a lot better chance, absolutely. So you go back to 2001, as you know, you broadcast that series. It was staged late April. The final was the first week of May. Everyone turned up. So uh, I, I think that's probably the best option. There's been plenty of discussion over the past couple of weeks whilst the series has, has played out. When is the best time to stage it? And when is the best time to stage it in Queensland? So everyone talks about the winter, Queensland in wintertime. It's sublime. So it makes sense. um, But then there's got to be a little bit of give and take. So does that mean that we're going to lose some of our other feature races, like the Blacks of Fake or the Sunshine Sprint, making way for the Inter-Dominion Championship? Or do you run it just before the Winter Carnival and look for that late April, early May time slot and then continue with the, the, the Winter Carnival in July as it normally is? So there's some big decisions that have got to be made and I'm sure they're going to be uh, you know, tossed about in the next couple of uh, weeks and months now. Interesting times ahead. We'll follow that with keen interest. Just in closing, at the start of the show, I mentioned Nathan Dawson's effort to, to drive 400 winners. I said he was probably a little unlucky because it was a weekend brimful of exciting events. Uh, Oliver's final ride, the Inter Dominion, the, the Phoenix for the Greyhound fraternity. Uh, but for Nathan Dawson to drive 400 winners, uh, and uh, only Chris Alford's done better, I think it's a wonderful achievement and deserves recognition. Oh, absolutely. It just caps what a phenomenal year it's been for Nathan Dawson. So he's the only Queensland driver that's achieved 400 wins in a uh, calendar year. And as you said, only Chris Alford's done it previously. And we're talking about Chris Alford, who's driven more winners in Australian harness racing history than any other participant previously. Not only did did he do it once, he did it twice. So back in 2017-18, he drove 456 winners in that year. The following year, he returned and drove 422. So there's now two participants that sit in that very esteemed company, Chris Alford and the Queenslander Nathan Dawson. So he achieved that feat Friday afternoon at Redcliffe, a track that he's had phenomenal success at. And, uh, yeah, it was just probably a little unlucky with everything that played out around him over the past couple of days. But that's a heck of a year, and uh, I'm I'm not sure. Records are meant to be broken, but I think it's going to be quite some time before we see another Queensland driver drive in excess of 400 winners in a single year. I mentioned he's a quietly spoken young man. He's a modest man. Uh, his driving does the talking was 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 the line I used. And uh, he hasn't been afforded any favours in life. He's had a few battles himself as well. So 
to get where he has, personally, he must feel very proud of himself, and he should too. Yeah, absolutely. And, and given too, uh, and, and this is a significant point, he's a freelance driver, David. He doesn't train a team of horses to support himself to get winners, and he's not really attached to any of the big stables. So as a freelance driver, to get over 400 wins in a season... That's remarkable. Yes, I know that Queensland is certainly racing a lot more than what it has done any time previously, but that's still a lot of dedication, a lot of commitment. So hats off to him. He deserves all the success that he gets. Thanks for your contributions to press from over the past well, couple of months, I suppose. It's been a busy time for harness racing, but uh, as well, uh, congratulations on your contribution to ID23 with outstanding broadcast. We expected nothing less, and now it's time for a good break for you and Carly and... Uh, Chelsea and Bryce, you have a good Christmas. Really appreciate it. Thanks, David. Same to you. There he is, Chris Barsby, joining us on Press Room. We'll take a break. Back with Ben Scannon on the other side. You're listening to Press Room with David Fowler on Radio Tab. If it's Equine or Canine, your one-stop shop is Garrard's Horse and Hound. They've got 13 stores across Australia and New Zealand. Garrard's Horse and Hound stock all the big names, and they provide the very best in veterinary services. You can buy the products online. It's horseandhound.com.au, or there's a free call number 1-800-060-896. 1-800-060-896. Garrett's Horse and Hound present Press Room each and every Monday. Let's have a chat with Ben Scadden in Adelaide. Ben, good morning. Morning, David. How are you? Good. Well, thanks. Uh, news came through late last week. A slight change uh, to your autumn carnival next year. We're going back to three days with the Australasian Oaks now going to join Sangster, on, Sangster Stakes on the opening day. Yeah, that's right, condensed a little. Um, yeah, and I can I can certainly understand the reasons behind that. So, yeah, as you said, we've got um, the first day of the carnival is April 27, um, and there'll be the... It's focused on the females that day, so the Australasian Oaks and the Sangster Stakes, both group ones. Then the middle Saturday is the Derby, um, which has kind of always been the case, then culminates with the Goodwood on May 11. I think one of the challenges that they've always faced during the carnival was clashing with with all the Aussie rules footy footy mm. matches on a Saturday so they've done their best to try to avoid that um, there's a thing called live golf that's on here I think on the um, on April 27 that same day like falls on the one of the days of the live golf is that Saturday April 27 so that could present some challenges but you know you're not, not sure that necessarily you know people are are interested in both golf, like you know, there are lots of people who follow both golf and racing. So um, I think the footy is is the bigger factor of the Aussie rules. So it certainly makes sense. They've um, they've also renamed a couple of the the major races over the carnival. We've got the uh, the DC Mackay Stakes, will now be known as the John Hawkes Stakes. That's on April twenty seven. Uh, so we don't have to go through that uh, challenge each year no. of, of wondering what the first name of DC was. That's gone. Was. I used to enjoy that. <laughs> and the uh, the other positive is that the RA Lee, <laughs> RA Lee Stakes yeah. is also gone. <laughs> it's just called quite simply the Cummings. I assume named after Bart, not Anthony or uh, Edward or any of the other Cummings. It's just called the Cummings. A two hundred and twenty thousand dollar race on the uh, on the last day of the carnival, May eleven. So, no more challenges about what's the first name of Mr. R. A. Lee anymore. It's just the Cummings. Yeah, I think that's good with the Cummings, of course, because it it sort of actually probably relates to the whole family, including like Jim and Pat as well. So, yeah. uh, I, I think there are appropriate name changes, both uh, 
the Cummings family, but also the, the Hawks family played such an important role in South Australian racing. And I, I think that idea of putting the two group ones on the opening day and condensing the Carnival 3, I think that's a good idea because you've actually got two good group one races where there's no clash. So you've got sprinting fillies and staying fillies. So if you're going to put yeah, exactly. two, two races on, they're the two perfect races to put on. Yeah, no doubt. Look, I, I, think, it's a, I think it's a smart move and it. Four weeks isn't a long time, but I think, um, like, if you're a keen race guy, maybe doing those four weeks in a row might have been felt like a little bit too much. You're you're a bit um you're a bit lagged by the end of it. You just about just about had enough, even though that last day is almost always the best day, that good good day. But um yeah, I think condensing it makes a lot of sense. You covered racing for a long time at the Advertiser, and and you know the Adelaide town, the Adelaide psyche inside out. I've sort of got a a brief or a minor understanding of it when I visit there, but the issue of football, particularly now with well, since the you know, the two teams came in uh, and racing, uh, I think a lot of people outside of South Australia don't realise how strong a football town Adelaide actually is. Oh, it's massive. Mm. It's absolutely huge. Like, as soon as the, the Crows and then Port Adelaide came into the AFL competition... Um, Saturday race days, if say the Crows, Crows or Port were playing at the same time, you would just you would you know cut the crowd by half at least. Um, yeah, it was just a huge factor, and the few people who did go to the races, they'd be standing there watching the football on the TV. So um, yeah, it's it's certainly Aussie rules football is um, is hugely popular here in South Australia and has had a really really significant impact on um, certainly attendances during the um, during the winter at, at Morfordville. I know when, well, where I stay in Adelaide, it's, it's right in the CBD, but you, when the footy's on, these swathes of people coming across to the ground. Oh, yeah. and it, it's quite, it's quite, uh, quite interesting to watch if you haven't experienced before. Um, let's get back to racing. Maggie Collin had a great day on Saturday. Yeah, she did. It was really good to see Maggie do so well, wasn't it? She, um, you know, she was on the sidelines for a really long time. Easy to forget that. I think it was around about a year. Um, she had those ongoing concussion symptoms and took her a, a long time to get that sorted. Um, got back to riding track work, then trials, and finally was given clearance. And she's only been back riding for about three months. So um, it's a really significant day for her on Saturday to ride those three winners. That's the first time she's had a, a, a metro riding treble. She went on Montaigne, uh, Missile Star and Just Like Lisa. So, yeah, it was a, it was a great day for Maggie and she's um, she's really making her mark now. She, I think she rode, she rode all of those horses particularly well as well. I thought she did a, did a really good job. She's, um, funnily enough, like that 12-month break, it seems like she's come back riding better than ever. Yeah, exactly right. Nadia Horde was uh, right to the fore. She selected Just Like Lisa, the one. Uh, and just, Justin Pickering's doing well with his team. Yeah, he's absolutely flying, isn't he, Justin Pickering? And um, he's actually the partner of, of Maggie Collett, so that, that team had a, had a really enjoyable day on, on Saturday at Gawler. He's, um, he's won six of his... six uh, His past 12 runners, he's had six wins. Pretty extraordinary. A 50% winning strike rate. Um, I don't think there'd be many many trainers who could boast that um, in, in recent months. And, um, yeah, that mare, just like Jesus, she, she's racing really, really well. And... Another nice little part of it for uh, Maggie Collett is that her sister, Lizzie, um, I think she works at the Chris Wallace stable in Melbourne, um, she's a part owner of that horse as well, just like Lisa. So it was, uh, it was an all-round um, great result for, uh, for Maggie, for Justin, and obviously for, for Maggie's sister, Lizzie, as well. Good on you, Ben. To you, Amanda, and Tom, have a good Christmas, mate. We'll talk in a few weeks' time. 
And to you, David. Thanks very much. Ben Scanlon joining us in Adelaide. Uh, this is Press Room for Monday, the 18th of December. Let's have a chat with Colin McNiff in Tasmania. Colin, how are you? Yeah, very well, thanks, David. I notice um, from an administrative point of view, we've got a new director of racing there in Tassie. Our eighth director of racing in the past seven years, would you believe? Another former police officer making four of those eight former police officers and uh, none of them have lasted very long. Uh, Look, the the director who was just in charge most recently, Justin Helmick, left within days of the government receiving the Marahi report. So read into that what you like, but uh, he was just reappointed for another six months, taking up until the end of March. So... Yeah, what uh, happened there, we're not too sure. There was no external recruiting process. This came completely out of the blue. But uh, another policeman or ex-policeman appointed as the uh, director of racing. So we'll just have to see how this plays out. But it's, uh, it's very, very uh, concerning, I think, uh, the way things are going in the Office of Racing Integrity. Yeah, let's strike out. What was it, eight in, eight in seven eight years? Eight in seven years, doesn't, yeah. Doesn't, yeah. Uh, it's a poor figure. Hey, the inevitable got beaten, and I noticed the horse who beat it was a horse that we've had up our way for some time, mm. indispensable. It was indeed. Look, he's down here just to run in the uh, feature races over our summer racing festival. He's been sent down to John Blacker. John was saying after the race that uh, once our carnival is over, he'll head back to, to Queensland. But he, for a Queenslander, he's a noted wet tracker, and uh, that was his fifth win on rain-affected surface. And, look, we had, uh, well, Queensland-type rain, to be perfectly honest, about 15 minutes before the race. We'd had rain throughout the day, but it really teamed down for 15 minutes before the concrete and... Uh, uh, the, the races were called off after that uh, after that event, so it, it was quite a heavy track. Uh, a beautiful ride by Froggy Newitt. Uh, had it uh, placed just behind the speed, got a lovely gap of coming around the home turn and pinched a break. The inevitable got a long way back. He was second last approaching the home turn, made a run, circled the field, came home very well as he always does, but just couldn't match the winner there in the conquering. So yeah, indispensable and the inevitable. I, I suppose with those two names, they had to run first and second. <laughs> they certainly did. Uh, Craig Newitt riding indispensable. So he ran the other feature winner as well. He did Doro Star in the three-year-old trophy, and this again was a perfect ride. Uh, Doro Star, um, lightly raced, tons of potentials, only had the four stars for two wins, two placings now, but a little bit of a change of tactics. Froggy took Doro Star straight to the front and uh, zoomed away coming around the home turn, and a very impressive uh, youngster, this one, Doro Star, and another another clever front-running ride there by Froggy to land the winner in the three-year-old trophy. He raced at Hobart yesterday, a track record as well. Yeah, and this horse, gee, uh, it, it is uh, one of the most exciting horses going around in Tasmania at the present time. I refer to Gigi's Gemstone, trained by Stuart Gandy. Four starts this campaign for four wins, so unbeaten and just stepping through the grades. That was his first tried open company yesterday in the Windenburg. Previous track record of 105.2, he clocked 104.33, so close to a second off the old mark. Stuart says he's going to tip him out. Uh, I don't think he reckons he's quite mature enough to tackle some of the uh, weight-for-age type races this time around over the summer racing festival. So he'll tip him out, and uh, I tell you what, as a five-year-old, uh, he could be anything, Gigi's gemstone. Yeah, six from ten overall and four from four this campaign. From the Greyhound point of view, you had the Hobart 1,000 last week? And what a cracking finish it was. Uh, two lengths between first and last, and not too often you see in any sort of greyhound race, let alone a group one, that the winner comes from fifth rounding the home turn. But that's where Cracker Jack Bull was, and he stormed home. Only hit the front probably a stride or two off the line. There was only two lengths between first and last. Uh, a tremendous effort by Cracker Jack Bull. And uh, for Jordan Cooper, his first ever Group 1 winner. He brought uh, a couple of greyhounds down to Tassie. Cracker Jack 
Bull and Cracker Jack RT. They both made the final, and Cracker Jack Bull took the uh, lion's share of the prize and uh, claims a, a Group 1 victory. Tremendous race. It was a, an absolute thriller. Good work, Colin. Thanks for that. Thanks for this year, and, and uh, to you and your family, a very Merry Christmas. And to you and yours. Thanks, David. Thank you. Colin McLeaf joining us to round our press room, and that is press room for the 18th of December. And to all of our listeners, have a great day next Monday. Thanks for your company right through the year, and as we said, we'll be back with press room on Monday, January 8th. You have a good day today. Bye-bye.